Welcome to the Water Zone. This is a live broadcast from KCAA in beautiful downtown San Bernardino. Uh, we have our podcast, kcaaradio.com, Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, video broadcast on YouTube, Ustream, Tiki Live, and KCAA Radio. Welcome to the Water Zone. And Chris Austin from Maven's Notebook is joining me to uh, begin the show. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, Ingie, how you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I'd also like to mention that uh, we're now live on Turfs Up Radio, and Turfs Up Radio is the only radio station dedicated to the green industry. So everything that we're going to be talking about and people are going to be learning about is going to be available on Turfs Up Radio as well. Well, that's great. Excellent. Yeah, Nobody so, can, you know, great to be getting the word out about water and water issues and how important they are to everybody. Well, well, that's what the water zone is all about. Um, uh, uh-huh. For the folks, that, for the folks that don't know me, I'm Ingie Biscotter. I'm normally the host of the Water Zone Ag podcast, and tonight we are having Rob Starr coming in uh, from the event in the area. Yeah, and I think we hear you, Rob. Hey, Rob, are you there? Do you hey, hear? Do you hear me? Yes, we can. Uh, welcome to the Water Zone. Uh, all <laughs> right, we're not on the air yet, are we? Yeah, we're on the air, and uh, Chris oh, and I are. Okay. Yeah, Chris and I, Chris and I are talking it up, and uh, we're um, uh, anxious to hear about what's been going on this week in the water world and what you're up to, Rob and Chris Davy, um, uh, along with the Wyland crew. Well, we are here with the Wyland crew, and sitting right next to me is Mr. Wyland himself. Hey, so Wyland, how are you doing? Everybody on air? Yeah, hey everyone. Uh, I'm over here at my uh, studio in uh, Laguna Beach beautiful day where are you guys at everywhere <laughs> yeah we're all over the place i think chris is um up in uh castake and i'm down in beautiful cardiff by the sea and uh we're just we're just um kind of water melting uh, from all over the south southland here uh, well that's great yeah i'm uh, happy to be here with these guys and uh you know of course we finished our uh our uh, national mayor's challenge for water conservation it was Super successful, I think. Over three billion gallons of water pledges from mayors and cities all over the nation, and uh, you know we've been doing this for I think eight years now, and it just keeps getting bigger. And you know the importance of water, you know, cannot be understated. And uh, you know, in, in my mind, uh, you know, it's going to require every citizen to be water wise, and that's really what the Wyland Foundation and our partners try to bring, you know, every day to this this issue, which is the the issue of our time, really. If we can't take care of our water, you know, if we can't take care of the health of the planet, you know, nothing else really matters, for sure. Well, with, yeah, for sure. There's not without water, there isn't life. And uh, kudos to you. Thank you so much for your efforts on raising the public's awareness on this issue, both in the ocean and on the on the the turf here on the land. And um, um, I know that. Uh, the city that I live in, I believe, is part of that challenge, the city of Encinitas. Uh, I hope they did well. <laughs> yeah. um, well, you know, yeah, you know, California had quite a water crisis for a long time. <laughs> so, you know, everybody's on board and, uh, you know, there's still some work to do. But I, I think um, from what I can see, people are really getting connected to uh, how, how the lakes, rivers, streams, ponds, wetlands, uh, the turf. Everything connects to the sea, and if we if we can take care of those those habitats that are inland, you know, and upstream, then then we have a real chance of uh, improving the quality of our ocean, which is really the heart of the planet. Yeah, well, you would love our uh, guest coming on next at um, uh, at the uh, bottom of the hour uh, from Impossible Foods. That's exactly what they're trying to do too: is um, reduce our dependence on water in uh, our food supply. So. Um, yeah, I think everybody's getting on board to do some um, more sustainable living. Well, what, what's funny is, you know, uh, Dr. Sylvia Earle from National Geographic, she just did another TED Talk, and just an amazing lady, uh, marine biologist. She says, you know, she told me that uh, we have plenty of water, Wyland, but, you know, we're just not taking care of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, you know, because people go, we're running out of, we're not going to run out of water, but we may pollute it to an extent that we can't use it. So, you know, at the end of the day, we got the waters here if, if, if everybody kind of takes action. And, uh, you know, and you don't have to do everything at once. I mean, small habits 
really add up. And that's what the, the, the Wyland National Mayor's Challenge for Water Conservation does. Uh, it adds up, and, and the matrix are tremendous. Uh, you can see the impact that just doing simple things around the house, uh, you know, at your school, you know, uh, you know, at your work, it really adds up. And, hey, Steve Creech just came in, uh, you know, the, the guy that really helps, uh, you know, with everything, the Wyland Foundation on all these water challenges, and he was there from the beginning. So this is Steve Creech right here, guys. Hi, everybody. Hi, Steve. Yeah. He's, a, he's also the director uh, of the Wyland Foundation. He's actually my boss. Uh-huh. This year. Oh, well, gosh, this year we had uh, we had winning cities from all across the, the U.S. It was really a cross-section of, of uh, cities, including Columbus, Ohio, Rexburg, Idaho, Palm Coast, Florida, Tucson, Arizona, Athens, Georgia. So the great thing about the, the challenge is it engages people from all across the, the nation, regardless of what sort of water issues they're having. And believe me, everybody has a different one which makes it really challenging in the United States to manage our water resources. And what Wyland was talking about, he started this way back, long before I was involved, but I think all of us really latched onto his message, and that was to inspire people early on, get them interested in nature, the world around us, and, and why we should protect these uh, ecosystems, and then get informed. So we're educated enough to make smart decisions, and then eventually we can take the kind of action that will protect and preserve these, these uh, habitats, including our oceans, our wetlands, our lakes, rivers, streams, for generations to come. And that's really what it's all about. Yeah. As part of the, uh, as part of the partnerships that we have, that Toro has and the Water Zone has with the Wyland Foundation and, and others, right, we need to get people engaged in all the work that Wyland has done early on, as Steve said, to, to get this uh, get this issue front and center is now starting to pay dividends, right? The water issue is becoming an issue of consent these days. People are consented to, to talk about it and discuss it and do things about it. That's what makes it so important. Last week we had the city of Cleveland on and they were telling us they were celebrating their 50-year anniversary. If you remember back in Cleveland days, the thing caught on fire. Yeah, burned up, right? And yeah. it was burning. So they're celebrating now what is what is the city of Cleveland's one of the most um, uh, better working water systems in the country now. And it just took uh, effort after effort and, and people after people to, to do that. That's what we need to do here, just encourage people to get involved and play their part. Small parts make a difference. Yeah, the, the mayor of Cleveland, uh, the Wyland Foundation, Toro and Toyota, we all went there. And uh, I actually painted a mural, you guys would like that, uh, on canvas with the uh, some of the inner city kids there, we painted the Cuyahoga River. And uh, it was beautiful because uh, we always use art to drive creativity. So we bring art and conservation in a very creative way. And I'll tell you, I know Toro and uh, all of us, uh, we know that the seeds we plant in the hearts and minds of our youth will, will grow fruit. And we're starting to see it happen on a, a national level and even a, a, a global level with our partnership with the U.N., for protecting the oceans, and then the, the more we start looking at this, and when I, I came into it, Wyland, was, Wyland said, we really have to start looking upstream, because if we don't address what's happening upstream, we're never going to save the oceans. So it was this perfect marriage of ideas for the foundation. So now we look at it as total ecosystem management, and it really comes down to sustainability. We want to sustain uh, the, the places we live in, the habitats that we uh, share our world with for future generations. Yes, what I love is that you have combined, you know, both art and youth with the whole ecosystem approach to save the ocean because, you know, people sometimes think it's it's us or the environment, but, you know, it has to be both. We can't live without the environment. So, Oh, actually, yeah. the environment could probably live without us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably do yeah. a lot better without us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, we, you know, we have it, to have a healthy environment to have a healthy, uh, you know, human population. So uh, just love what you guys are doing. Thank you so much. Hey, we appreciate you, too. And, Rob, you wanted to say something? Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, just, just for our audience, today is the official launch day of Extreme Water Makeover, and we're starting off in Orange County, uh, California. 
And what this um, water makeover contest is, is you, uh, people who feel their front yards need saving because of water problems and things, what they have to do is send a picture of their front lawn and uh, no more than 300 words to waterzone at toro.com and tell us why you need a water makeover for your front yard. Prizes are washers and dryers, uh, dishwashers, all low uh, water use products, uh, shower uh, heads, things of that sort. Uh, all the irrigation equipment and all the stuff put in for free, no cost to the winner of this. Uh, you have uh, starting on uh, the 1st of the month of July, and the contest ends at midnight on July 31st. And then we'll pick the winner about a week or so after that. So uh, everybody who lives in at least Orange County, California, this is where we're starting first, then we're going to go around different places every uh, six to eight months. And um, the Municipal Water District of Orange County is putting that in all the bills for all their... Uh, Water agency, so a lot of homeowners are going to see all of this. So please take part in that. It's a great contest sponsored by the Water Zone in Toro and Metropolitan. I'm sorry, Municipal Water mm-hmm. District of Orange County. We also have Howard's Appliances. Uh, we have Home Depot uh, and NBC Radio and Kellogg's Garden Products. So we're uh, very excited about that. Yeah, that's really great. We're going to have some better looking yards and probably um, you know more water efficient um, at the same time. Right. If anybody has, anybody has a question, they can just send it send it to. Uh, Waterzone at Toro.com. So I'm going to turn the show over to you because I know you got uh, Chris Austin there. Chris, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. We're, <laughs> we're here with a, there's a whole bunch of people here tonight at, uh, at this event with Wyland. So I'm going to turn the show over to you guys and the ladies, and you get to run the whole thing. Well, th- thank you so much for calling in and uh, carving some time out from your event. Uh, congratulations on the Wyland Foundation, uh, both you, Wyland, and uh, Steve Creech, and uh, Chris and Rob will hand the show back off to you uh, again next week. And in the meantime, uh, our guests uh, and our listening audience can uh, learn a little bit about what's going on in the water world this week from Chris Austin. Chris, what's going on this week? Oh, you know, <clears throat> the, Shasta, the raising of Shasta Dam remains controversial, as always. Um, I mean, there's lawsuits and, and all, all sorts of impediments to raising this dam. You know, and not all of them are, um, you know, not unreasonable. You know, while it can be done, it, it would flood out uh, Native American lands that we've all, that have all, you know, we've already taken a, a bunch of that, and it would just flood even more. And there's some real questions on, you know, how much water yield you're going to get and all this. And so they had some, um, and the state of California, by the way, um, filed lawsuit against Bureau of Reclamation, no, I'm sorry, against Westland's Water District, who is the local partner in this project, um, on the raising of Shasta Dam. So the state of California is not for this project, and neither is the Center for Biological Diversity, who said that raising... Uh, the dam would endanger salamanders. So they have actually uh, made, uh, they had a deal that they made that's going to get uh, these endangered salamanders listed more quickly, which could affect um, the raising of the dam. Uh, You know, and whether this is a good project or not is really in question. Um, You know, when it comes to dams, we have these dams, they, they call them the rim dams because they're high up in the mountains and they sort of surround the Central Valley. But a lot of the water um, that falls, falls below the dams where there's nothing to capture it. So there's a project out there called Sites Reservoir, which, which is sort of designed to capture the water that falls below the dams. And if you kind of look at the climate change projections, this is sort of where we're headed. More rain on the valley floor, less snow and others up up in the mountains. So, you know, so the question of whether we're going to raise, you know, raising Shasta Dam is going to generate a lot of money as compared, or or a lot of water, excuse me, as compared to dams, you know, that are more, further downstream is really in question. So right. it's, a, it's 
you know, it's really a questionable project, and you know they're throwing up the the roadblocks. We'll see where where it all heads out. The, the federal government and you know um, so, uh, several congressmen like McClintock and probably Lamalfa, you know, are in, in favor of these types of projects, but they're um, you know they're definitely not favored among others. So. We'll see what happens with that one. Yeah, yeah, it probably makes more sense to build water retention facilities in the valley floor um, and to help with groundwater um, regeneration rather than um, a dam uh, to catch water that you don't know if it's going to fall or not, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. and really, you know, we need to be, I, I think that the whole trend now in water management is looking towards projects that are more regional, that yeah. are putting water into groundwater basins in places that need it so that they will have it when the dry years come. And it's not about catching it up in the mountains anymore. It's more about catching it where it falls. And sometimes that's, you know, like projects like Sites Reservoir, and, and, and that's also projects that are diverting this water into areas that can recharge these depleted groundwater aquifers. You know, if you listen to what the climate change projections are telling us, it's less snow in the mountains and more rain, and we've got to become better at catching the rain um, when it comes and putting that into our groundwater aquifers because there's not going to be so much snow, which I know is, you know, we're looking at <laughs> this year, and we have this massive, amazing snowpack, and our reservoirs are all of them. I mean, when I po when I did my reservoir conditions on Monday, all of them above average, filled. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, and the climate projections say that we'll have a couple of these years in between some really, really dry years. And yeah. that we're going to have more dry years than wet years, but we may get years like this. So we shouldn't look at, you know, we shouldn't look at a year like this and say we don't need to pay attention to climate change. We need to remember that we had the driest year in, you know, I don't know how many, in the historic record or the, you know, what we have, you know, what we've recorded. And then, like, a year or two later, we had the wettest year, and that we're going to be swinging between these dries and these wet. although the climate modeling says they're going to be more extreme dries than the more extreme wet. But when these wet conditions uh, occur, we need to be able to catch them. Yeah, so we need to catch that. Yeah, catch the water and sink it into the groundwater. But we can't assume that it's going to be as wet as it's been the last 100 years. We basically developed the West over the last 150 years, which was some of the wettest years that we've had in the historic uh, realm. If you go back a couple thousand years, this has been a relatively wet era compared amazingly to the past. wet. Yeah, amazingly wet. <laughs> you look wet. at we it. Just, <laughs> we just happened to assume that it was always going to be this way. So we need to keep diligent and... Um, you know, the cities need to keep doing their jobs. I know the University of San Diego just put out a report saying that, hey, Southern California per per capita water use is inching back up, and we need to, just because it's raining, we need to stay diligent and start inching back down. I mean, the governor is going to have, what, a 55-gallon per person per day um, uh, goal come in here 2020 or 2025 or so. And, you know, a lot of cities are still in the hundreds. So we've got to get yeah. better at this. And it's it's never okay to waste water, and yeah, it's never, never okay as it's never okay to waste uh, electricity or or right. any other resource. You know, That's you don't right. you don't pour gasoline out when you're at the gas pump and go, oh gosh, well you know, exactly. spill some there. Oh well, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to take care of this these things, and we need to be we all need to be personally responsible, not just for our water use, but for our electricity use, too. Yeah, you because know, they're both, we know they're, for that. Yeah, they're both connected. Well, Chris, um, thank you so much for joining the show again at the beginning uh, of the Water Zone Hour and uh, for the listening public. 
please visit Maven's Notebook and support it. It is a treasure of water information, and um, Chris, you're really a dedicated journalist to put that together every day. I think she's up there Christmas morning putting up, you know, blogs on <laughs> uh, the water zone. So thank you very much. We'll move on to uh, commercial, and uh, Chris, let's talk about bringing you on for a whole hour soon. No problem. Take care, All guys. Right. Good evening. Okay, thank you. All right, over to you, Frank. Welcome back to The Water Zone. This is Ingie Bisconner, host of The Water Zone Ag Podcast, with my guest, uh, Rebecca Moses uh, from Impossible Foods. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, we were just talking um, at the top of the hour about uh, how Californians need to become uh, more uh, you know, climate um, change uh, resilient and become more sustainable. And so this is uh, really apropos to have you on the line to talk about how we might be able to uh, do that with our food. <laughs> so um, uh, for our listening audience, our uh, topic for the next half hour is how plant-based meat could affect ag resource consumption, uh, including water, of course, because we're on the water zone. So, um, Rebecca, let me let me give our listening audience a little bit more about your background, and then we'll uh, dive into some some uh, conversation here. So, uh, Rebecca Moses leads Impact Strategy at Impossible Foods, which is a company addressing climate change and sustainable food futures through plant-based meat. Her work focuses on how product innovation and consumer behavior can maximize environmental outcomes and business growth. And she works with the Impossible Foods teams to integrate environmental social mission into their core strategy. So Rebecca began her career, of all things, in the defense industry and later leading to a focus in sustainable food systems. She was uh, doing graduate studies in international ag development at UC Davis, my alma mater, so go Aggies. And she's also supported USAID, UC Berkeley, Stanford, and Cal Poly's Coastal Ecosystem. She's been working at this intersection of ecology, agriculture, and international development, both in domestically and actually abroad in the Middle East as well. And her research contributions can be found in a number of prestigious um, journals like the Public Library of Science, the Journal of Applied Ecology, and as well as the USAID Water and Livelihoods Initiative online. So, Rebecca, plant-based meat is really a hot topic in the press today. There's just been a lot of coverage that's ramping up, um, uh, and for a number of different reasons. Tell us um, a little bit about, you know, your company, Impossible Foods, and how it got into this space and what it hopes to accomplish. Absolutely. Um, you know, in a very kind of short answer, what we hope to accomplish as a business is supporting ways to successfully sustainably feed a growing population, um, especially as we're approaching, as a planet, about 10 billion people in the next couple of decades. And the way that we're going about that, uh, and really the, the kind of concept that our CEO and founder, Dr. Pat Brown, approached this with was, you need a private sector solution. Um, we need a way to get more resource efficient in how we eat, um, eating basically lower on the food chain, requiring less land, less water, uh, generating less emissions. And uh, to do that, we do require these kind of new technologies to get away from some of the more impactful aspects of our diet, uh, especially animal products, and especially as the world gets more populated, the world becomes more wealthy and demands uh, of very much more of these kinds of products, milk, dairy, um, or rather dairy, uh, meat, especially beef. And that's yeah, really well, where we've focused uh, with, well, our, with our flagship product, which is the Impossible Burger. Yeah, all the things that come with a higher standard of living that everybody wants, right? You know, meat and dairy. Absolutely, and we have it in the West, and it's important that those things are available for nutrition, uh, you know, for, for culinary applications worldwide. And this is plant-based meat in particular is, is you know, the best way to do that without compromising more natural resource use. So uh, Time Magazine actually interviewed your founder, Dr. Pat Brown, last year, and he said, quote, that his company isn't attacking the meat industry or trying to tell people what to eat. 
Rather, he wants to develop tasty choices and make sure they're so good that consumers will choose them over animal-based products. So what exactly is an Impossible Burger, and how are the taste tests going? Right, and, and I think that is kind of an important note to start off on, which is, you know, we don't want to be prescriptive. Uh, what we want to do and what we have done is put a good product on the market, um, that product being the, the plant-based burger, the Impossible Burger, and let consumers kind of take it from there. Um, the product itself, and this, this is the Impossible Burger, but while we call it a burger, it's actually a ground beef. Uh, when we sell the restaurants, uh, and we're in over 10,000 restaurants now, including uh, with Burger King, sells either as a patty, it can sell as a, a brick of salt ground beef, and you can do the same things with it um, in the same applications that you can with really any ground beef product or any ground beef recipe. So whether it's beef bolognese or meatballs or a traditional patty, um, this product is designed to really have that one-to-one equivalency, both for nutrition, although we're able to leave out the cholesterol, uh, same protein, same iron, uh, and in terms of just the way it cooks, you can throw it on a grill, you can handle it the same way. Uh, and, and again, it is at a much lower uh, uh, kind of resource footprint. And I mean, it, it's fairly simple. Like, there's a ton of R&D, a ton of science that went to figuring out how to do that. Reverse engineering beef, basically, of looking down at the molecular level and saying, well, why does this taste the way that it does, smell the way that it does, cook the way that it does? Uh, and then figuring out how to do the same thing, just removing the middleman, uh, the cow, and the current product, uh, Impossible Burger 2.0, their new recipe. Okay, 2.0. 2.0, 2.0. Yeah, um, cool. it, it was great. We, we initially had a, a wheat-based uh, burger that was Impossible 1.0, and it was good. Um, it, it really was. It was kind of at parity with beef and taste test. What we've been able to do with 2.0 has uh, moved to a soy-based uh, 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 product. So it's soy protein, coconut oil, sunflower oil, uh, potato protein, and our, our magic ingredient team. That's what makes it, it catalyzes those flavors. It really allows us to recreate that beef experience. Um, that allowed us really to, to level up in terms of our access to consumers, in terms of the restaurants and and the traditional burger chains that were adopting the product. It's, it's really, it's a one-to-one substitution with this new, you know, the 2.0 recipe, and it's allowing us to capture those carnivores, those omnivores. Uh, those are the folks who, they might not be thinking about their water footprint on a day-to-day basis, especially not as they're eating, but you can, you can really tap into that, make change agents out of those people, even if it's not something they're going to prioritize when they're ordering. You know, it's not necessarily, oh, I'm going to be more sustainable in choosing this. It's, this is delicious. Uh, it doesn't have cholesterol. I like this product. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of a happy coincidence that it's also uh, a lower resource footprint. Yeah, you know, we would hope and wish that people would just be altruistic and do the right thing um, all the time, but we all know that that doesn't happen. People do want to be satisfied when they're eating. And Hey, I, I have to say, um, even your 1.0 burger, I had a taste of it a couple of years ago up in L.A. when this was just first starting to break, and I was with uh, my sister and my niece, and they were a little skeptical when I said, hey, I've heard that there's a restaurant called The Counter in, uh, near the airport, and um, they have the Impossible Burger, and I want to try one. And uh, we went and did so, and I tell you what, it was delicious, and uh, my sister and my niece, they were blown away at how much it tasted. They couldn't believe it wasn't real meat. I mean, it bleeds like meat. And that's basically what you guys have done. You've reversed engineered meat. And it's just crazy. And found out that, you know, there's a particular uh, component of meat that makes us um, uh, really like meat. And what, what is it called? It's called heme or something? Right. It's a molecule called heme. And, and actually, that's, that molecule is found in every living organism, uh, just happens to be really highly abundant in uh, things like red meat. And so we were able to find that from a plant-based source. We use a a heme protein that is originally found in the root nodules of soy plants. And so we can get that same experience, Um, you know, get that kind of wow moment for consumers that are saying, are you sure this isn't meat, Um, which is key to the environmental mission, is is that like conversion of of consumers. But uh, that's that's how we were able to do that, and heme is super important. It's part of our 
the broader technology platform that's also going to enable us to launch new products and really expand out um, the product offerings. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people are in it for the health thing. You know, they don't want the cholesterol. Um, others are in it for the whole environmental footprint. I mean, you know, next to humans, cows are probably the most um, impactful uh, uh, thing on the earth, right? They, they just use a lot of resources to make meat, and they also um, cause a lot of climate change gases into the atmosphere, to put it politely. <laughs> yeah, and, and absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not the cow's fault, right? It's how we've been no. using them. It's, it's how many we've put out there. At yeah, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's the scale issue. And so that's where these new technologies, I, I think they're super important. We, um, we have to get away from that reliance thousands of years old technology and it's worked for a long time but now we're we're kind of creating new problems for ourselves using it um yeah. so yeah i completely agree yeah things change well i think when you and i were chatting the other day uh we both realized we both had a, a, a cattle ranching background um somewhat and so it's funny that we're both um interested in this in this area but you know it's kind of like the horse and buggy uh, got replaced by the car and the airplane and who knows what next you know uh, in the past, we had the cow as the middleman um, to feed plants to to create meat, and now maybe um, science and technology is going to be able to cut out that middleman and and uh, have more sustainable choices for for the public. So, you know, have you really studied, um, you know, specifically how impactful meat consumption is on, in particular, our water resources, uh, since this is the water zone? I mean, I. We work with um, with agricultural producers to produce crops, including alfalfa, um, soy, and wheat, uh, which you were just mentioning. So could we actually save a lot more water if we weren't feeding these um, plant materials to the cow? We could definitely save more water. Um, the, the reason for that is pretty simple. It's, you know, when you're eating beef, well, where did that come from? It, it came from an animal. And what was the process to, to get it to you? Well... An animal was walking around for a couple of years. Cow was metabolizing things. Um, there is embodied water in the corn and the soy feed that they're eating, um, in the grasslands as well. Uh, kind of a different different accounting of water when you're talking about rainfall um, compared to irrigation. But the upshot of this is that if you are able to assemble the same product, um, the plant-based beef, straight from those plants, um, rather than going through that kind of metabolic interim, it just means that you don't have to rely on that irrigation. You don't have to, uh, you know, include the 36 pounds of corn and soy feedstock that, that went in to make that one burger, rather that one pound of, of beef. And so that's the reason that it's so key for scaling. Um, now, the other part of this is that there's also the downstream water pollution effects of the scale at which we have industrial farming, industrial animal farming. Uh, and so if there's a way to move away from that system, move away from reliance on that system, uh, particularly, again, as these emerging economies come online um, and are demanding more of these products. I mean, that's going to have huge uh, repercussions for just the avoided impact of water pollution, of, of the total amount of water that is used in growing the feedstocks and the service water going to the animals. Um, at a really high level, it's estimated that animal farming itself, not just cattle, account for about 30% of the total freshwater uh, stocks on Earth. And that does include rainfall. Um, but you've got to kind of think about the opportunity cost of that, too, especially here in California. Um, I know alfalfa gets, uh, gets a little bit of a bad rap, uh, at least in the Central Valley. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you can actually figure out how to get proteins out of that plant biomass, out of alfalfa directly, um, you don't have to feed it into an animal in order to get uh, another set of protein out of that, there's a really great opportunity for, for more efficient water use. Well, yeah, it just occurs to me, I mean, we're, we're talking about, um, well, the you know, planet population is going way up. Um, the state's population continues to grow. And I think the Public Policy Institute recently put out a report that said that, you know, we're going to probably have to take up to a half million acres out of production in California. And, you know, it's probably going to be the lower value, you know, feedstock um, crops that, that you just listed, like corn, alfalfa, maybe soy, um, 
that go out of production in favor of the higher value crops, like, you know, here we almost have a million acres of almonds in the state. But um, maybe that's not all bad if we're converting, you know, we're basically doing a better job with our water to grow those crops, and maybe it's even elsewhere, so that we have water left over for the fruits, nuts, and vegetables here uh, in the West. So, I don't know. Um, things things will change what, what people grow and where, and... Um, you know, and I, I guess this isn't really just a local issue either. Uh, you're working internationally as well. Well, we uh, we do sell in uh, the markets in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Macau. Uh, and so, going back to that idea of emerging economies and scaling yeah. that that region, I mean, in, in the U.S., beef consumption, dairy consumption, it's been pretty stable for a long time. That's not the case in uh, in in Asia. And so, being yeah. able to provide a solution in that part of the world where you're really going to see the, the expansion of the agricultural footprint. I mean, you talked about the, the goal to constrain um, acreage in California. Well, that's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what's going to be needed to support the demand that's uh, rising globally. And, and that has a right to, you know, the same delicious products we've been eating. Um, yeah. And so that's a big part of the reason that we're there. And it's, uh, we've seen tremendous growth probably fourfold over the past, several months since we launched our new our new recipe out there. Okay. Yeah, I think that was mentioned. Uh, you know, the Time Magazine article, I think, was maybe a year old, but that was a, a big focus with Asia because that's uh, where the population boom is happening. So, Well, tell us, um, what what do you think consumers are going to be able to expect in the coming you know months and years if plant-based meats continue to gain popularity and, you know, your technology gets better and better, you know, when are we going to see um, Impossible Burgers 3.0 and 4.0 and maybe other, maybe even other types of, of meats will be um, reverse engineered? What, what's going to go on there? Uh, yeah, this might be kind of a, a strange statement to say uh, on behalf of the brand, but I'm hoping that we become pretty unremarkable. Um, in the future, I, I hope that we are just kind of, you know, a thing that you order and it's not, oh, I'm going to try this Impossible Burger. It's just I'm going to eat a plant-based burger and, and that's, you know, just a part of my day. Yeah. Um, so that uh, that aspect of kind of, you know, it's widely accessible. It's widely available, um, whatever the product is. And, and just across, I mean, I'll, we'll kind of give credit to the whole plant-based meat sector, not just us. This is a, kind of a whole movement that's, that's growing in terms of consumer um, change, in terms of product availability. So I think what you're going to see uh, is clearly more of these products, more offerings uh, from us, from Impossible uh, Foods across new products in the next several years. We will be rolling out new categories of products. Uh, we have a number of really cool prototypes uh, that you know we're kind of waiting on commercializing as we uh, build momentum um, in the market. We launched a sausage product uh, with Little Caesar's Pizza a little while ago. So that's oh. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's really good. It's uncannily similar. I mean, it's, uh, this is kind of the, the future that I'm seeing is you're going to see more of these products, and you're going to see them in retail stores. You're going to see them in restaurants. It's, it's going to be um, uh, more omnipresent than it, than it ever has been in the past, and they're going yeah, to be okay. as good as the other thing. They're going to be as good as the animal version, and that's really, really new for this space. Yeah, because people always kind of compromise, you know, of, oh, I'm not going to get a... a you know, a, a hamburger, a, a meat patty, I'm going to get a veggie burger. And it, it, they're definitely not the same experience. They're not bad. I mean, it depends on your taste. But, um, you know, a veggie burger can be good, but it's not like a hamburger. Whereas your goal here is really to cater to the um, to, to the meat eaters, right? Uh, for sure. And I'm, I mean, I'm our target market. Um, avowed meat eater, it's hard for me to say no to a burger at a barbecue. And it's, it's literally my whole job is to think about the environmental impacts of that. So using that as a case study, you really have to capture consumers with this tastes really good. Um, we're, it's competing on price. And capturing those omnivores, those carnivores, the people who do eat high on the food chain, so to speak, have that little bit higher water footprint, getting those folks to substitute, even if it's you know just a few times a month, there's a just really, really uh, large resource savings that results from that. And so it's it's kind of subversive sustainability in a way. Uh, we're not leading with it necessarily, and consumers 
uh, as we talked about before, it, it might not be their priority in purchasing. It's usually not. But that's still the repercussions of that, of that change. You use less water, use less land, uh, emit less GHGs based on food choice. Yeah, you're really leading with the carrot rather than the stick. You know, you're not telling people, you know, God forbid we don't want to tell people what to eat. You, you start to even suggest that, and you see peop- the hair go back on people's heads. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Never tell you, people they're, no. they're doing something wrong. That is the yes. fastest way to lose your consumer. We don't want to be prescriptive. Do um, not take away my T-bone steak. Don't even try. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. But don't if make you people feel bad them, about what they're eating. Yeah, but if you can lure them in with, hey, this actually tastes really good, and you can feel good about eating it, it's, you know, better for you, better for the planet, you know, how, how can that be bad? You know, that's all good. And it, it goes well, back I, to the idea of abundance, not scarcity, right? We're not asking yeah. for compromise. Um, right, this right. uncompromising. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, yeah, unremarkable and uncompromising. I like that. You know, the, uh, the best burger that you never heard about, uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> Well, didn't you just do, or the company do a um, a trial with Burger King? More than a trial, for sure. We launched uh, a few months back our test uh, kind of test market with St. Louis, Missouri, and it went really well. Um, the The Impossible Whopper is the product offering, and it's a dollar more. Uh, you know, very slight increase from the regular cow based Whopper, and it went really well. Burger King, you know, worked with us to roll out in more markets. So now we're in um, Miami, a number of places in the South, like uh, Columbus, Georgia. We're also in the Bay Area now. And by the end of 2019, we're doing a national rollout. So this was, I mean, for me, this was like the big proof of concept of, okay, this really can be an engine for um, sustainability and for uh, resource sparing. If you can get into a, a place like Burger King, you know, international fast food chain, um, super, super available and accessible. Um, that's, you know, that's really what we have been hoping for. That's been kind of the goal this whole time. So we're going to keep on moving in that direction. All right. You, everybody, uh, you heard it first on the water zone. You're going to be able to get an impossible Whopper at, at BK, at Burger King, uh, here soon in California, all over California, huh? That's right. All over. Well, uh, that's, that's just fantastic. I know that initial, um, market mechanism was through higher-end, uh, you know, not fast food, but uh, higher-end restaurant burgers, which has a more limited audience, I would think. At, at what point... And that was... Yeah. yeah, go ahead and tell go us ahead. more about that, that you, you're thinking there to go from just places like, you know, the higher-end restaurant to, hey, we got to get into fast food joints. It was definitely a big change for us. Um, so when we first launched, it was really strategic that we were partnering with these Michelin star chefs, these kind of the, the big name chefs. And the reason for that, well, a couple of fold, but first we had we didn't have that much product. We were manufacturing, just getting started, figuring out how to bootstrap this thing. And using that small amount of product, if you can build credibility uh, with the people who are the most authoritative voices on what's good food. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Mm-hmm. And and we worked with them really to demonstrate, hey, this is a new thing, but it's really good. Um, it's different than something that you've had before. It's not a veggie burger. Um, and the chefs were absolutely just the, the focal point and the most important part of driving that message home. But from then- the beginning, it it has been our goal to be very accessible, to be everywhere, uh, to the average consumer. And okay. that's where we wanted to move really fast. And so White Castle was the first fast food restaurant we launched with nationwide. So two bucks for a slider. And we're still in Michelin Star restaurants. It's just now we're also everywhere else. Yeah, so you knew that from the very beginning, and I assume the restaurant chefs knew that. Whereas if you went the other way around and started with, uh, you know, the fast food and then tried to go up, probably wouldn't have worked. They probably wouldn't have been interested. I just don't think we had enough product to, to begin with to kick it off. Yeah. I mean, it's a tough sell going to a big chain like that and saying, well, we got a little bit of product. Do you guys want to try it out? A um, little more flexibility. It's a little more agile when you're working with um, kind of individual restaurants and smaller chains. So are you going to be looking at reverse engineering, say, chicken or fish or pork in the future? The, the technology platform that we have um, 
and, and like I said, there's a lot of R&D that goes into, a, into this lots of lab work to figure out what are those molecular components and how do we recreate that with plants. You know, the actual manufacturing is very different. It's basically you know, paddle mixing uh, plant-based proteins and oils together. Um, more complicated than that, but much more straightforward than what's happening in the lab. The technology platform we have in that lab is really kind of cross-transferable across products. And so we, we have a great head start on eggs, chicken, fish, all of the pork, all of these things are kind of part of that, that platform. Team is really important to it. And so while they're by no means easy to uh, kind of finalize, bring, to, bring through commercialization, we are fully invested in, in really advancing um, the research that's required to get us to those new product rollouts. Yeah, I think um, you're, you're basically privately funded, if I'm not mistaken, and, uh, and you've had no real problems getting funding, correct? Well, we are, we're our startup. We're pre-profit. Um, we were able to accelerate and invest in our research because of venture capital, and that's, that's been really successful. Um, and I, I think it's important to also note just on that product portfolio that we, it wasn't an accident that we launched with a, a plant-based beef product, that, that it was ground beef, which is half of what Americans consume in terms of their beef product. When half. we're that's, looking that's half, at... Half of the beef we consume is, is in ground yeah, beef. Yeah, it is, it is. And uh, because cattle are that, it's that most impactful environmental um, aspect of, of livestock, cows, um, we really want to focus a lot on the products that have the most um, potential for environmental impact savings. And that's, you know, cattle, that's, that's kind of the, the, the bigger actors there. So when we yeah. talk about water footprint reduction, we're, we're building that in at a business level, not just within our own products. Yeah, yeah, the, the ground beef being the biggest. It, it'd probably be a little tougher to duplicate a, you know, a porterhouse steak or, you know, whatever. But um, ground beef may be a little bit easier. And, you know, I, I didn't even mention um, one of the motivations um, could be the whole animal rights movement, too, just, you know, kind of the way that we treat our animals. as, as we. So it's both a human health as well as an environmental issue. And I uh, omitted saying, um, you know, a animal rights issue, too. So... Whatever floats your boat, folks, um, any of those different reasons are a good reason to go and try some of these. And will I be able to buy them in the grocery store, too? I think by end of this year, you should be able to uh, to pick something up in a grocery store. Um, I'll keep you posted on that. We've got plans. <laughs> well, you know, I discovered um, Impossible Foods when I was visiting the UC Davis Research Farm about three or four years ago. And I ran into an agronomist there who was working with the researchers there to figure out how to harvest alfalfa leaves uh, without the stems so that it could be used in, you know, the recipe. And I was pretty intrigued with that and what they were doing. And he was just as intrigued with us using subsurface drip irrigation on alfalfa. Um, so I've been following this for years. And I'm just fascinated. And, you know, it, it's happening. I mean, it's in the news. Uh, it's got some competition now, which is probably good that you're not the only one. That um, There's several things going on. And, um, you know, um, I, I think, uh, and that's why I reached out to your company to, um, to discover you and to talk um, tonight here on the show. Because I think it's really important for people to know that there are really great choices that are better for you, better for the planet, better for animals, um, that aren't necessarily a compromise. You don't need to compromise anymore. The stuff is great. <laughs> I, I'm here to tell you. I've, I've tasted them myself. So, um, Well, anything else that you'd like to share with us? we got just a couple more minutes until we need to sign off. Um, anything else you'd like to add, Rebecca? You know, I think we covered a lot of it. Um... For me, again, my motivation in working here is really that idea of how do we feed more people using less resources. But it's just kind of, I, I love it that all things in agriculture seem to lead back to UC Davis. Um, when, you were, yeah. when you were saying that you first were introduced to us on the student farm, and I used to work on the student farm, um, and we still conduct the, the alfalfa research uh, out there. Um, yeah, it just, it's just <laughs> a very California ag moment. Yeah, yeah, and you you were involved with a cattle ranch at some point in the past, as I was, right? 
Well, I grew up uh, part-time on a cow-calf operation in western Wisconsin. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time uh, around cows from a young age, and then I worked uh, running ag research uh, education operations um, on a cattle ranch, but focused really on the cropping system. So I, I you know, it, again, it's not down to the cows. It's not down to the ranchers. This is just a scale question. And so new technologies, that's what we're going to need to, to uh figure this whole global question out in a more sustainable way. Yeah, well, uh, thank you so much for joining the show and for the work that you guys are doing. And Yeah, I totally agree. It's not the cow's fault or the rancher's fault. I mean, that was just, that was what was going on in the day. And uh, things are uh, rapidly becoming different with higher population and climate change and, you know, resource constraints. And this is just one of the things that we can do as people in addition to irrigating more efficiently, which is uh, kind of what we talk about a lot on this show, is uh, doing better with irrigation and water consumption in the home. And uh, Now it's um, what we can do in the kitchen and in the restaurant to uh, lower our water footprint as well. So, uh, Rebecca, thanks for joining the show. Um, for, um, for your um, networks, this will be on iTunes. Uh, the Water Zone Ag podcast is published on iTunes as well, so we can... Uh, listen to this uh, conversation uh, in about a week. It'll be up on that. And um, folks can also um, hear the Water Zone on Turfs Up Radio app, and they can tune in every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. Central or 11 a.m. Eastern Time and visit turfsupradio.com to learn more. And uh, with that, I'll hand off the show, and thanks again, Rebecca, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Bye-bye. 